All right, let's let's pray and and we'll get started, okay? Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for the grace and the mercy uh, to come together uh, on another uh, Lord's Day that we can worship you, Lord, that we can lift up our praise unto you, and that we can uh, think about you and contemplate the deep truths and the mysteries of the faith. And we're so grateful, O oh God, that you have revealed these things to us such that whatever you've revealed to us belongs to us and to our children forever. And we pray, O oh God, that we would have the right view of your divine truth. We thank you for your decree, Lord. Thank you for your sovereign uh, plan of redemption that you have worked out in your Son, Jesus, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we pray as we continue to meditate and, and think about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and the association of the Comforter to the Son and vice versa, Lord, that we would just see new, um, just new uh, colors, as it were, of the rainbow of your redemptive plan and that we would see the grand scheme of redemption for what it is, that it is you uh, and for your glory, the glory of the triune God, that you are saving a people, that you are building a new humanity, that you are uh, saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for your glory, and that uh, nothing will uh, thwart your hand, and that what you have purposed will come to pass, even as it is right now coming to pass. And the fact that we are in this room today is evidence of that, Lord, that you are saving your people, people from every walk of life, people from every uh, every uh, tribe and family and tongue. And we just ask, Lord, that you would give us great insight into the mysteries of the gospel now. And we pray all these things now in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Well, amen. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, we're starting a new quote-unquote section uh, to the study that we've been doing in terms of what I've entitled the Spirit of Christ. Uh, And we looked so far at so many different things. Today, what I want to focus on and um, uh, what we've already focused on uh, in terms of the Son and the Incarnation uh, today I want to talk about the anointing of the Spirit. Okay, uh, the anointing of the Spirit, of course, being upon Christ. And so I thought what we would do is read the text. Why are we focusing so much on Luke, by the way? Anybody have an answer for that uh, besides the teacher? <laughs> Why are we focusing so much on the Gospel of Luke when we are trying to make this connection here, the Spirit of Christ, which is my way of saying how the Spirit works in association with Christ and vice versa. Does anybody know why? Luke is, you know, mostly emphasizes Mm. the work of the Spirit, I guess. Mm. Very good. That's right. This is correct. Of the four Gospels, it is the Gospel of Luke. Commentators have pointed this out, that the Gospel of Luke uh, particularly, is this thing on? Yeah. Uh, Focuses on the Spirit, And uh, you find the phrase in Scripture over and over and over, and filled with the Spirit, and filled with the Spirit. Jesus, filled with the Spirit, goes into the desert uh, to be tempted by the devil. He's driven by the Spirit. By the Spirit, he performs miracles. By the Spirit, Zacharias prophesies. By the Spirit, Mary prophesies. By the Spirit, Simeon prophesies. And you have all of these uh, references to the work of the Spirit uh, in Luke. So this is one of those, and this is a big one, because this is really the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, I'm not going in any specific chronological order, if you haven't noticed that by now. Uh, I'm not, because obviously the temptation comes first before this, but uh, we're going to get to that. I'm basically going to be looking at uh, how the Spirit anoints, how the Spirit uh, empowers and how the Spirit uh, glorifies uh, the Son, okay? That's where we're going. Now, today, we're only going to look at the first one, and I've got several uh, things that I want to point out uh, as far as that goes. But uh, let's read the text, uh, beginning in verse, oh, I don't know, I suppose we can begin in verse 14, just to emphasize the Spirit again. It says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, 
And news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. That's kind of interesting, right? Jesus praised by all. Well, just stay tuned, right? And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Consequently, you will find the same language being used to the Apostle Paul later in the book of Acts. As was his custom, he went on the Sabbath to the synagogue by Paul. Uh, and so G, uh, uh, Paul was, uh, um, Paul was uh, following in the footsteps of his master. And uh, why did he go to the Sabbath? Uh, why did he go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, the Apostle Paul? Why? Why? Uh, why was he there? What's that? That's right, to evangelize the Jews. He wasn't observing the Sabbath as much as he was taking advantage of their sabbatical meetings in order to uh, evangelize them. Uh, so, uh, and so now it says that Jesus stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Boy, I'd, given, I'd give anything to see that. <clears throat> and he opened the book and found the place. Can you imagine, guys? Where it was written, there it is, the finger of God going through the Word of God, the very incarnate Word of God going through the written Word of God, perusing through with his finger, trying to find that place in the Word of God. Wow. You know what I mean? I mean, just a little mind-bending there. But true. And this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. Now, he um, he either refers to the Spirit or to God. Uh, and I think it's God that he's referring to, not the Spirit there in the sense, right? He anointed him with the Spirit. Okay, well, we can debate that. But because God anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, he has sent me, i.e. God has sent him. Uh, but just as, this is, uh, uh, this is um, in keeping with the entire message there of Isaiah that he's, uh, that he's quoting from. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, uh, he, took, he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, remember how it started. All were praising him. Look down at verse 30, 29. They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the borough of a hill on which there, were, there was a city, a city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. Now, I've preached some bad sermons in my life, but I've never been taken to a cliff, (laughs) maybe mentally. (laughs) Something happened between verse 15 and verse 29 (laughs) that turned the tide in the congregation. Uh, That's not the subject of our our study here today. Uh, uh, Basically, uh, Jesus is going to... uh, uh, tell the people that, and I think he's responding, if you want to know, to verse 22, when they said, is this not Joseph's son? You see, they're not on the plane, right? They're not on the, they're not on the right level. Uh, they're still perceiving him only as merely a son of Joseph when he is the son of God, right? And uh, while there was a, a sort of an apparent, immediate, favorable response to the preaching of Jesus, you know, Jesus tells them, you know, no doubt you're going to call to me the proper physician, heal yourself, basically tell him, you'll mock me on the cross. This is coming. Uh, and then, um, you know, he goes into how a prophet is not welcome, but in his own, in, you know, in his own hometown. And then he t- starts talking about how, you know, uh, just like Elijah only healed one uh, widow and only healed one leper, you know, and the same thing is going to happen to them, you know, that God is going to pass over uh, certain people, and and they take that immediately to mean themselves, and so anyway, so his uh, his his preaching was a uh, at the same time that it was a declaration of salvation, it was also a pronouncement of judgment upon the rebellious house of Israel, which uh, we'll come back to that. But uh, uh, what do you guys see? I guess what what jumps out at you based on this text here uh, that he's quoting here in Luke, and just to be very clear, the passage that he's talking about here is for. Verse 18 and following, and what's he quoting? Isaiah 61, verse 1. And in the context, I guess we can go all the way to uh, verse 5 uh, of Isaiah. That's what's going on there. 
Uh, but anything jump out at you guys just uh, based on the reading of this text? Anyone? Yeah, I see that hand. I would say the necessity of the Spirit. The necessity of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, amen. I mean, uh, you know, everything that Jesus, this is why theologians say, you know, the entire ministry of Jesus is a ministry of the Spirit. Uh, everything that Jesus did, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, sort of showing that, you know, their their functional unity as one. Also, you know, coming from the temptation, you guys, I mean, the temptation is meant, you know, by biblical authors, it's meant to uh, remind us that Jesus is, in a sense, the second Adam, you know, that Jesus just got done doing combat with the devil, you know what I mean, and defeated the devil in that temptation, right? So he's kind of like the second Adam, as it were, you know, conflict with the serpent, uh, but he succeeds where Adam fails, you know, that whole thing. So it's like the second Adam is emerging who is clothed with the Spirit. Everything that Adam should have done and should have been, uh, Jesus now is. And so, um, you know, this whole language uh, is kind of uh, locked up in the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, so, you know, we, we have to eventually go there. So turn to Isaiah chapter 61 because that's where all this is grounded. Everything is grounded and rooted in Isaiah and um, and what's going on here. And so what I'm going to argue based on this passage of Scripture, um, this really should be 1 through 4. Uh, let's just read it quickly. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to free the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, uh, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, this is interesting, too, because then he says, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Now, why do I read that verse there? Because this passage in Isaiah 61 is in the context of a familiar theme in the prophets, and that is the language of restoration, that God is going to restore the nation. So how how is this... Um, how is this then is connected here to the Messiah? So it's almost like in Scripture, the Messiah is the one that brings in the end time restoration to which the prophets looked. Uh, you see, I want to go slow because, you know, I know people would like, you want to ask questions, but, you know, it always happens after class. I wanted to ask, but I didn't want to be the only one. Please be the only one. Look at Michelle, exhibit A. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that stone showing him that he is the foundation stone to what? You just back up in that very text that you're reading there, right? He talks about how God is going to build a spiritual house, you know, the temple, right? So he is the found, he is the cornerstone of the temple, which is the end time body of Christ. That is the spiritual temple to the Lord, right? Which is almost like to say the body of Christ is the temple is to say that the body of Christ is Zion. You see? Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, right? Verse 22 and following, uh, the author of Hebrews says that uh, the church is synonymous with Zion, synonymous with the city of the living God, synonymous with the uh, church of the firstborn. You see? So all these uh, themes go together. Uh, any other questions whatsoever? Uh, there's so much here, but let's see here, because th- there are some things that uh, I don't want to rush over because I think it's important enough. So basically what's going on here is that Israel is in a time of utter distress. That's important to see. You see that Israel is surrounded by her enemies. Uh, Israel is in a state of disarray. It's a very dark time in, in Israel. They're, they're living under the thumb of the Romans, 
right? And they see no way to any sort of of uh, victory or restoration. Uh, that's why, you guys, you know, we can't understand this and we struggle to comprehend all this, but not the people that were there. For example, the prophecy of Zechariah, remember what he says in uh, Luke chapter 1, he says uh, what, what is being uh, accomplished here, what is being done here is, verse 71, salvation from our enemies. And so that's like, uh, you know, Zechariah saying the children of Israel are still awaiting that because yeah, obviously you talk to a Jew right now, today, you know, uh, guaranteed. One of the reasons why they reject Jesus Christ is because according to them, when Messiah comes, all of our enemies will be done away with. And look at the state of Israel right now. So Messiah could not have come. That's like one of their number one reasons for rejecting uh, the Messiah. What's, what's the problem with that argument, though? Anyone? What's the problem with that argument? What are they missing there? Anyone? But yes, and of course Jesus will do that, right? <laughs> Won't he deliver his people from all political enemies? What's the problem with, with that, though? What are they missing? Mm. Yeah, that's right. His kingdom is not as of this world, but furthermore, that his kingdom is an already not yet reality, right? So it's like already Messiah delivers his people spiritually, positionally, Right, uh, salvifically, redemptively, and He will uh, deliver us uh, eschatologically, meaning in the future. In the future, there will be a total, final deliverance of the people of God from all God's enemies, uh, and that in, that that involves a literal, physical deliverance from our enemies. That involves destruction of all the, you know, God-hating uh, nations of all of the all humanity that rejects the Messiah. Psalm chapter two. Right. Psalm chapter two, it says very plainly there, you know, why do the nations rage and the people imagine a futile thing, the vain thing, the kings of the earth gather against, you know, God's anointed. Right. Uh, And uh, and it says, you know, in the end there that if you don't pay homage to the son, you will perish in the way. So uh, there's no question that a physical, literal deliverance is coming. But but what happens is that if even if you go back to Luke uh, or Isaiah, whichever you prefer in the sense of. Just to look at what what is what is the content of this prophecy, you know that he's quoting here. You know he 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 speaks of uh, you know he speaks of poverty. What else? Uh, what what what's the things that he speaks of? Uh, yeah, captivity, blindness, right? And what's the last one? Uh, oppression. Yeah. Oppression. So all of these debilitating spiritual issues here, or actually, no, no, all of these debilitating physical issues, right, are then taken up into, or they're, they're taken up to their actual spiritual, their deepest spiritual uh, and soteric level. Right? When I say soteric, what do I mean? Vocabulary time, right? What does soteric mean? Salvific, dealing with salvation, right? Soteria is the Greek word that means salvation. So soteriology, right? So something can be soteric, uh, right? Dealing with salvation. So that's what's going on is that Jesus is taking all of these literal historical factors that Israel has dealt with, you see? And and, and, and what he's saying is that all of these issues are redefined in a sense, so, uh, so what does Matthew 5 tell us, right? Uh, what kind of poverty are we interested in, Brian? Poor in spirit. Why do I pick on Brian? Well, because he taught on it. Man. He better know. Twice, once in Israel. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's right. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, like... Uh, What's coming, therefore, is like uh, when Jesus comes, you know, he's going to bring a uh, a super spiritual age. You know, it's kind of like the age of the spirit. You know, this is important. You know, this, the messianic age is the age of the spirit. Uh, it sounds better if you say messianic age. Messianic age. Man, I don't even know. Anyway, I'm so terrible with this. Y'all are masters of grace by this 
by this time putting up with me, but my writing. It's worse than a doctor. It's worse than a mechanic. Um, <laughs> learning Greek and Hebrew is easier than interpreting my, my uh, writing here. But, uh, but the Messianic age is the age of the Spirit, and that's, uh, that's really important. A lot of times, you know, we think of like, like uh, I guess to me, like when I say the age of the Spirit, for you guys, what comes to mind? What's that? The world. The world? Yeah. How so? so just, just speaking of age, meaning like the time period. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. And mainly temporally, though, what I'm talking about, this is the period of time of the Spirit. Okay? But what is that? How, how do you guys understand that? Here's a question for you guys. Does it mean the age of salvation? No. Yes and no? That's a, that's a valid answer, by the way, in here. <laughs> well, yes and no, because, uh, yes, because, this, you know, obviously Messiah brings the Spirit, people get saved. No, because he's already been saving his people from the dawn of time. Okay? Like, you know, you want to make a dispensationalist angry? And tell him that Adam was a Christian. Okay, what else was he? You know what I mean? Like some other religion? Give me a break. We're all saved the same way. You see? We all, Abraham is the paradigm of New Testament soteriology. You see? So God has always been saving his people in the same way. How? By the Spirit. Abraham was born again. Uh, so it cannot mean that uh, the age of the Spirit signifies that what has come is salvation in the strict sense of the word because salvation has always been happening. So, so a lot of times, uh, the age of the Spirit, or as we think about the Spirit in the New Testament, a lot of that can be understood by what it is not, right? What is the age of the Spirit not? And one of the very important things is that, uh, what I would say is, um, is that the age of the Spirit has really dislodged uh, the covenant community away from what we can call the institutions of Israel, right? Israel, meaning what? Meaning uh, no temple. No, what else? No sacrifice. No, what else? No priesthood. You see what's happening here? Uh, What else? No theocracy. You see what's going on here? We are, we are, in a sense, reorienting the epicenter of worship. What does Jesus say in, let's just add some text here, John, yeah, John chapter, John chapter 4, verse 24 and following, I think it is, you know, where he says, you know, uh, what does he say? No, I really don't, I don't know for sure. Oh, yeah. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But um, but more importantly, right, look at verse 21. Let me just correct this so that you guys can see, right? 21 through 24. But what does he say? He says, woman, believe the hour is coming when uh, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. <laughs> so now the epicenter of worship has been dislodged. It's been removed. You know, what Jesus is saying here, you guys, is worldview altering, you know, for somebody to hear, okay? I told you guys the example of like the temple, you know, how much if you were a young kid and let's say you lived in the, the, the diaspora your whole life, you, you lived outside of Jerusalem, and let's say you grew up, you never traveled to Jerusalem because you couldn't afford it or whatever, but you heard your whole life the temple of God where the presence of God resides is there in Jerusalem, and we're going to pilgr- take a pilgrimage, you're going to go see it, and then you go, and let's say you're walking down one of the valleys there, you know, right, right by, the, um, by the temple, and uh, you're way down, you know, hundreds of feet down into this valley, and then at the very top, right on, uh, right there on, on, on that mountain right there where the temple sits is a 10-story building, Way, you know, all in white limestone, lit by torches. It's literally glowing hot white, 
okay, at night and you're standing there for the first time in your entire life and you say, wow, I'm here for the first time and that's where God, that's where Yahweh dwells, the Holy of Holies. That's where the, that's where the presence of God manifests himself to the high priest every year. I mean, imagine you're overwhelmed. Now imagine what Jesus is saying. No more of that. <laughs> that's all gone, right? That's going away. Matter of fact, He's going to go so far as to say, now one stone will be left upon another. I'm going to decimate this whole place. And now you see, I mean, you go to Jerusalem today and you start preaching that Jesus destroyed the temple. They will stone you to death. I mean that. The Jewish people will stone you to death in the street if you start preaching that Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, destroyed the Jewish temple for his glory because he is the temple. (laughs) You won't make it through the streets. I'll tell you that right now. Forget the Muslims. The Jews will kill you. Uh, so you see how radical this is, what Jesus is doing is by, by bringing the age of the Spirit, he has dislodged the institutions of Israel altogether. It's a radical, complete, total paradigm shift, and uh, it should be so. Okay, let's, um, here, I don't want to miss this. So the Spirit, as the Spirit comes, uh, the age of the Spirit is a, is, a, is a time of what I called eschatological blessing. This is seen in Jesus' first miracle at Cana. What did he do at Cana? He turned water into wine. Why is that significant? It's not so that Christians can debate Christian liberty. <laughs> See how we miss stuff, guys? Like, we're so, like, you know what I mean? Like, why is Revelation 1, 2, 3 written? It's not so that we can debate about Darwin. You know what I mean? It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about Darwin, for crying out loud, you know? Uh, why, do, why, why did he turn water into wine? Anybody want to take a stab at it? You remember what you're... What's that? Let's close in prayer. Whatever mama says, man, that's it. <laughs> Somewhere in that text in John chapter 2, it says that he filled the jars to the brim, right? And so what most commentators, so you take any of the best commentaries on John, D.A. Carson, uh, Andreas Kostenberger, Leon Morris, whoever, uh, Herman Ritterboss, they will all point out that the, the miracle of Cana is symbolic of the superabundant age of the Spirit, that the age of the Messiah is the Messianic age, is the spiritual age of total abundance. In other words, it was like a symbol. Uh, it's kind of like you guys know the scriptures in the Old Testament talk about the land flowing with milk and honey, right? And what's that a picture of? That's a picture of saying you're, you're going to a blessed land. This is a bless, overflowing with milk and honey. It's like, you know, it's a symbol of covenantal blessing. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene and in the power of the Spirit performs a miracle of turning water into wine, what he's saying is that the age of covenant blessing has arrived. And uh, let's look at a couple of those. Look at uh, Amos. I'm going to throw some scriptures out, okay? Y'all be ready. You read it because I don't have them. Uh, let's see. Uh, Max, maybe you can read uh, Jeremiah 31, 12. Okay. Brian, maybe you can read Hosea 14, 7. And then, um, sister, you want to read? <laughs> uh, Amos 9. Let's see how fast that tablet works. <laughs> Amos chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. And I'm going to focus a little bit on Amos, but Amos chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. So Jeremiah 31, verse 12. Max, are you there? Almost? You've got both. You've got, you got a technology and you've got a book, so. How about Hosea 14.7? You got that, Brian? Those who live in his shadow will again shall arrange grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall build the ruined cities and inhabit them. 
They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Now, if you're a dispensationalist, and I hate to pick on them, but let's be honest. Uh, if you're disp- they pick on us, so fair fight, fair fight. What they're saying is that all these scriptures that we just read are fulfilled exclusively in the millennium. That's why you need a millennium. You need a millennium to cultivate the land again, to plant these vineyards, to drink the wine again, to, to engage in everything that we're seeing here in these prophetic visions of the prophets, okay? There's only one prophet problem with that. Uh, Amos chapter 9. Where is that quoted in the New Testament? Do you know? If you've got a little cross-reference, you'll, see, you'll find it. Right. Where's, that, where's that quote? Does anybody have that quick? No? I'm just wondering if anybody just knows off the top of their head, too. Nobody, you don't know? Acts what? No, not Acts 2. Acts 15. And why is it quoted in Acts chapter 15? It's quoted in Acts chapter 15 because God is saving the Gentiles for his namesake. God is saving all of humanity will stream to him. And so the, pro, the, the apostles, in order to show that uh, this has been God's plan all along, how do they substantiate this? They quote Isaiah chapter 9, or excuse me, uh, uh, Amos chapter 9, to show that this eschatological vision that the prophets are given us is fulfilled in Christ. You see, that Christ, through Christ, is how we arrive at all the restoration promises. Okay? Uh, it's kind of like e- Jesus could have said the land, right? And he does, actually, in different places we can make that, that conclusion. But it's kind of like what he's saying, like poverty. It's not the physical poverty of Israel. You know, captivity. It's not the actual physical captivity like you've seen before in the Old Testament with Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. It is not the uh, uh, oppression, you know, of the Roman uh, government, okay? That is not what the, the essence of it all. It's not the restoration of the boundaries of Israel that's important. All of this is p- pointing to a spiritual dimension, a spiritual dynamic that is fulfilled soteriologically. Eh, okay, I'll stop right there because I said a lot, but anybody have questions for me or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah, so it's kind of like the literal physical captivity that, that Israel underwent multiple times, right? The, the oppression that they were under by their enemies multiple times. That God is going to do a work where he delivers them from their real enemies, which is not the Philistine. You know, their real enemies is what? Sin, Satan, and death, hell. These are, these are mankind's real enemies, you see? And when that restoration comes, it's a total reversal of Israel's fortunes. And so, um, uh, any questions? No dumb questions. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look at what Jesus says in John 3, you know. Without the Spirit, a person cannot even see the kingdom. You see? Um, how, how about this verse? Let's let's look here real quick. Um, I feel like I'm, okay. Uh, Isaiah, this is amazing. 59, let's begin in verse 20, right? 20, 20, uh, 21. Somebody want to read that for us? The reason why this is important, you guys, Isaiah 59, is because this is congruent with what Luke is quoting in chapter 4 of Luke. As he's quoting Isaiah 50, uh, 61, okay, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is in the same stream of thought, going all the way back to Isaiah 59. Um, I'll read it. A Redeemer will come to Zion. And those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. And so apparently there is coming 
a eternal spirit fullness. Get that right. There is coming an eternal spirit fullness that both the Messiah and his people will take part in. And that's what uh, Isaiah is foreseeing. And so it all, in a sense, it kind of all goes together. You know, it all, it, it's all uh, how God is kind of, kind of build his, his kingdom. Uh, fast forward, uh, chapter 60 of Isaiah. Look at this text, verses 1 through 5. Okay, uh, let's read that. These are all familiar passages. And by the way, all these texts, just keep reading, reading along, and you'll see how often as you read these texts, you'll immediately come across uh, a verse that you know, right? A verse that you know that would be like, oh, wait, I know that one because it's in the New Testament. I, I know, you know, I remember reading that, you know, talking about Jesus, you know, uh, the Gentiles have seen a great light and all of this, right? He's the light of the world, right? That's quoted there, uh, you know, like, oh, yeah, like uh, Zechariah, we're going to look at this, you know, talking about the nations. And, and, and it's like just when you think, you know, you're in some context that's specific to Zechariah, then he says, and behold, you will see your king coming mounted on a donkey. You see, so it's all interweaved around all of these messianic contexts. And that's why I think we have the justification. I'm going to get to that in a second. But look at Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 5. He says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light. See, this is what Israel was intended to be all along, a light to the nations, right? And kings, uh, to uh, uh, the brightness of your rising, lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms, uh, in, in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill, uh, will thrill and rejoice uh, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. By the way, the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60 here, verses 1 through 5, is in Revelation chapter 21, where the revelator speaks of the glory of the nations being brought into Zion. You see, this is where Revelation is pulling this from. The fulfillment of this was never going to be fulfilled by ethnic Israel in this age. It is, uh, like everything else, it, it has a a spiritual dimension to it. And when that happens, a great reversal will take place. A great reversal will take place. I'll show you the absolute folly of thinking that in the future, you know, this, these things are going to be somehow literally fulfilled in a millennium. L- look at the, look at the, because this is not just a, sort of a side issue. It's very central. Look at Zechariah chapter nine. This, uh, this is this blew my mind when I read this because it really shows us like the nature of the salvation that Christ will bring. What happens? I mean, remember how it all started, like in Luke chapter one, right? It talks about how John the Baptist will condition Israel. Remember, it will condition their heart to do what? It's like bringing the hearts of the fathers back to their children. You see, or the hearts of the children back to the fathers, right? It's kind of like a whole heart change. Will, tr- will take place. You want to hear a prophecy that a prophet of Israel gave to the children of Israel that must have absolutely just mystified them. Okay? It would be this right here, uh, Zechariah 9, uh, verse 6. The mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. This is Zechariah looking forward to the same restoration that Isaiah is prophesying about. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Okay, that we understand. Right? If you're Jewish, yeah. God cutting off the pride of the Philistines. I mean, after all, who the Philistines? They are the arch enemy of the people of God, right? And then he says, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God. And there will be like a clan in Judah. Actually, the Hebrew word there, clan, do you have a footnote in your Bible? What? Chieftain is the way you can translate that. They will be a chief or a chieftain. In other words, they will be a leader, a leader in the tribe of Judah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Goliath? Going to be a leader in the tribe of Judah? That's mind-altering. You know what I mean? That's difficult to accept. You know what I mean? 
That'd be like telling the Jews today the Nazis <laughs> will be right in the heart of the covenant community. That'd be like saying you're going to fellowship with Hitler in the covenant. <laughs> A little controversial, right? I mean, think about what God is saying here. He's going to win over the enemies. And remember I told you before, you just keep, keep reading a little bit further in some of these prophecies, and before you know it, you're in familiar territory. How many of you guys were familiar with Zechariah chapter 9, verse 7, about the, the, the Philistines being turned into a chieftain in the clan of, of Judah, right? None of us. Like, what? I never even knew that verse was in the Bible. Now, how many of you guys are familiar with verse 9? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. My my daughter loves to sing this song. This little, this little like a little worship song that they did. Rejoice, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. She, all day she's singing. I'll never forget this verse now. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a coal, the fowl of a donkey. Now, we know where that text is at in the Bible, right? That's in the New Testament. That's the triumphal entry of Christ. In other words, what are the New Testament authors telling us? This is the way that this is being fulfilled. This is the only way that you're going to take a Philistine and a Jew and bring them together in covenant fellowship with one another. There's no other way, right? It's breaking down Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, breaking down that middle wall of separation that separated Jew and Gentile for millennia. I mean, we think the civil, you know, we think the civil rights movement and the, and the American slavery and things like that were bad in terms of racism. That's peanuts compared to the ethnic cleavage that existed between Jew and Gentile for thousands of years. You see? And, and the only way to overcome that is by the salvation uh, that Jesus brings. And so, anybody have any questions or comments or anything? Okay, we got to get to this because there's no way, okay? Um, so what I'm saying is if you go to Luke chapter uh, 4, because you're saying, how did you get to all that? Okay, let me just recap. How did you get to all that, right? Well, I got to it because he's quoting, hey, it's Luke's fault. He's quoting Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is in league with Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 60. And all of this is in league with Zechariah. is in league with all these other texts about the future restoration that the prophets saw. Okay, but they could never really truly see what it was all about. Now, if you go back to Luke, another issue that is transpiring here is when he says here, in terms of captivity uh, and more importantly, uh, when he talks about the release of the captives, what is he talking about, y'all? Anybody know where that originates? We talked, Lynn Bryant, we talked about this, remember? Because um, in terms of the nature of Jesus' redemption, we can also understand it in terms of the, watch this now, the jubilary theology of the Bible. What do I mean by jubilary? Talking about the day of the year of Jubilee, right? Where is the year of Jubilee found? Leviticus 25, 8 and following. Okay? Why is this important? Why is this important? I have absolutely no time to develop this, but why is this important? What the reason why this is important is because this is what happened during the year of Jubilee. During the year of Jubilee, what happened was that people were allowed to return the covenant land, Canaan, to restore the land back to its original conditions. In other words, no more agricultural activity going on. Let everything grow back and be back the way it was when you first came into the land and when you first adopted it, you see? And, and as a matter of fact, we're going to go beyond that. We're going we're gonna to go, uh, go and try to make the land back into the idyllic land that it, that it was meant to be, right? Where nobody owed anybody anything. Where nobody was owned by anybody. So what happened was, is during that time, financial debts were dissolved. Indentured slaves were set free. And that's the whole purpose here of talking about release of the captives, you see? Uh, and, 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 and also the fallowing of the land, allowing the land to, be, to, to sort of grow again uh, the way that it was when they first took place. Why? 
because this is what's happening. This is my suggestion, okay? Is that the, what Jubilee was typifying was, was the new creation. You see, what God... Turn to Leviticus chapter 25. Oh man, we don't have any time for this. Look at Leviticus chapter 25, what God says here. God never wanted His people to get comfortable in the land of Canaan. Why? Because it was not the real land. It was just a type. It was just a shadow of the new creation to which they actually belong. You see? And so, what did I say? Leviticus 25. Yeah, but... I said 25. It better be 25. (laughs) Yeah, 25. I'm sorry. Yeah, 25. Uh, Okay, so verse 8 all the way down to verse 12. That's where he talks about the Jubilee and what takes place there, okay? But look at verse 23. No, 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 no. Leviticus 25, verse 23. What does it say? Somebody read it for us. So what is God trying to do to the people? What is he saying there? Anybody want to take a stab at it? What is that all about? I think it's phenomenal that God says the land is mine. Right? The land is mine. It's not yours. <laughs> it doesn't even belong to you. You can, t- you can live in it. You can build your houses and you can sojourn there if you'd like, but it's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. So your pride is not found in the land. <laughs> your, pride, your pride, in a sense, your glory is me. Right. And what is what is your identity in, in association with the land? What is your identity? Your identity is one of alien and sojourner. Now, brothers and sisters, do you not understand that the Bible calls you to be aliens and sojourners? Right. Who who was the ultimate sojourner in the Bible? Abraham. He, dealt, he dwelled in tents, right? And he just went wherever God took him until he finally showed him the land, you see? And so what happens is that in the age of the Spirit, it's almost like we return back to an Abrahamic economy. Wrap your mind around that, guys. God wants us to go back, not under a mosaic economy. Uh, consequently, this is where theonomy fails again because they, they, don't, they misunderstand the nature of the new covenant We are no longer ever to go back under a mosaic economy. Why? Because under a mosaic economy, don't you understand? The whole world around us is unclean and we cannot associate with it. But Abraham can associate with the world. He made a covenant with Abimelech, a pagan. You try that under the mosaic economy. You try being a Jew under Moses and the theocracy and you go make covenants with pagans. You'll be stoned to death but not when you were in Abraham's dispensation. Let's use that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Rub it in a little bit. Not, not under the time of Abraham because you were not bound to the theocracy of Israel and he was a stranger, an alien in this world. And therefore, you know, Lynn, you can go work for a, you know, a te- where do you work? <laughs> Missiles or whatever you're doing, man. <laughs> Classified, yeah. You know? But you can go work for, you know, McDonald's. You can go work for Budweiser. You can go work for Coca-Cola or Ford. You know what those companies are doing? You know how many millions of dollars those companies are giving to the LGBTQ, X, Y, and Z movement? Right? And why is it not a sin for us to go and contract with those uh, sinful entities? Right? And have a relationship with them because we're no longer bound to this uh you know this 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 uh sort of uh administration this covenantal administration of the clean and the unclean right so uh that explain anybody question please no no dumb questions you got five minutes
Uh, I was supposed to entitle this study, uh, The Anointing of the Spirit, and what does the Spirit anoint Christ to do? He anoints Him to be the Messianic Consummator. You heard it here first, folks. The Messianic Consummator. Why? Because He ushers in the true uh, Jubilee. And what is the true Jubilee? Watch this carefully. It is the 50th year. It is the consummate year. It is the 50th year that Ryan r- rounds out the 49 years of Sabbath rest. Why is that important? Because the 50th year, or uh, if you just go Sabbath by Sabbath, uh, it would be uh, like it would fall on the eighth day. The Sabbath was on what day? Seventh day, the year, the Jubilee would be on an eighth day. Why is that important? Because what's the eighth day? Eight. It is the first day of the week. You ever heard of that phrase before? What is, what is the first day of the week important to Christians? Huh? What else do the Christians do on the first day of the week? Gather for assembly. What is God telling us? This is why, and this is, uh, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stir up some controversy and just leave you hanging there, and I'm sorry, <laughs> but, but I got to do it. It's, this, is, this is why Reformed uh, theology, I believe, is wrong to move the Sabbath around. Like Reformed Baptists, they would say the Sabbath is now on Sunday, so it's called the Christian Sabbath. Even in the confessions, it's the Christian Sabbath. What's the problem with that? Don't move around the days because the eighth day is just as important as the seventh. You see? And Jubilee, what is the Jubilee doing? It's no longer simply communicating rest. It's typifying the new creation. Right? So when we gather together on the first day of the week, it's not because we're repeating the Sabbath. We're actually um, on the other side of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is telling us something is finished. Jubilee is telling us something is started. Big difference. The Jubilee is launching us out into the new creation. You see? Um, so, everybody upset now? Confused? Well, just keep it. 